And now, The Federal Drive with Tom Temin. Hello and thanks for joining us on this Friday, March 24th, 2023, seven minutes past the hour. I'm Tom Temin. Our producers are Eric White and Peter Masurlian, our digital editors Daisy Thornton and Darris Lauderdale. Coming up in this hour of The Federal Drive, a special focus on DISA, Defense Information Systems Agency, will get a progress report on the joint warfighting cloud capability. Plus, DISA fields a classified version of a very widely used cloud application. Those stories and much more ahead during this hour of The Federal Drive. But first, Space Force officials say they want to reach full force capacity by this summer. While Space Force says it doesn't have the recruiting problems experienced by the other services, it does have to build its ability to train new guardians. For more, Federal News Network's Alexandra Lohr spoke with Space Force's Chief of Cyber and Spectrum Operations, Colonel Joe Wingo. One of the key things, one of the reasons why training is so important is because uh, it has to really kind of get in front of tools acquisition and even in, in get in front of recruiting. And so we spend a lot of time focusing on how do we get people into the Space Force, right? And how are we recruiting and things like that. We spend a lot of time thinking about what's the new tool that we want to buy or the new weapon we want to buy or, or you know, thing we want to buy. But the other key piece in that capability is the training. So how do I get guardians where they're able to utilize that weapon system or mission system effectively in order to be able to generate a capability and cause effects? So... One of, the key, one of the problems with training, though, is that it takes a while to stand up the schoolhouse. You have, you know, you've got to find your location. You've got to have, you know, range space in order to be able to train students. You have to have instructors that have been trained up, and you have to have curriculum that takes time to develop, right? You have all of those things that require time, a lot of time. And so the challenge is oftentimes we can recruit really quick, and we can get people in, and we can buy the next piece of technology really quick and get that done. But there's this training oftentimes gets forgotten about. And then because it gets forgotten about, historically with a lot of systems, it's happened poorly. Um, Things get thrown into place really quick. We've seen a lot of, uh, over the course of my career, I've seen a lot of systems come in where they do models like train the trainer and on-the-job training for various types of, of systems. And those have really... Uh, inevitably failed. It's just, it's not a good training model. And it, it doesn't provide predictable consistency with what's taught to a student. And it doesn't really uh, effectively measure a student's understanding of their ability to be able to do what it is that you're trying to train them to do. So one of the things that we're trying to do then is figure out, well, how do we shorten the timeline for how we get training, how we make training available so that we're making the train of, uh, training available ahead of the guardians getting there and needing it and in time with the tools or the systems that are being procured. In doing that, then you have to you end up trying to leverage some of your existing training sources like uh, existing universities through existing degree programs, uh, public universities or private universities or military universities like AFIT, or whether or not you're utilizing commercial certifications um, as they exist to do that or whether or not you're using existing uh, mil- existing military training from other services. So to be specific right now, are you talking about ROTC programs? Are you talking about commissioning young officers? Or are you talking about further training for enlisted recruits? So I'm talking more mostly about everything that happens after they come into the service. 
from on the recruiting piece, like when you're talking about things like ROTC, so we're already filtering on the officer side, we're already in, in the cyber career fields in particular, we're already filtering recruits for having the right kind of degrees before they come in. So we already have those requirements that are built into the recruiting process. On the enlisted side, you know, they already have things like ASVABs where they're trying to basically uh, and other tests that we use to make sure that we're getting folks with the right aptitudes into it placed into the right career fields. Are, are they different specifications than the Air Force or the other services have for, like, say, the ASVAB? Uh, at this point in time, I don't believe so. So I'm not tracking the ASVAB specifically, so I couldn't speak to that. Um, so how do you filter them? Well, in terms of the ASVAB? In terms of having the skills and qualifications you need for Space Force. I mean, really, to, to, to be a guardian, what we're looking for uh, coming into the Space Force is the same thing a lot of the other services are looking for just in terms of overall desire to serve, what we're looking for in terms of people with, with the, a value system that matches up to the service's value system and the service's core values. I mean, so those are the key fundamental pieces. And then beyond that, just looking for folks who demonstrate the aptitude to be able to learn the skill set that you're trying to teach. And that's kind of where the ASVAB comes in. It looks at everything from language skills to how you look at engineering problems to spatial recognition types of things to try to figure out um, not just what somebody knows, but what we think they can effectively learn quickly. That's kind of what aptitude testing is about in general. So um, there's been a lot of research in that area, like language aptitude, you know, what's your ability to be able to learn a language. Some people learn languages faster than others. The same way some people learn cyber stuff faster than others. And so trying to identify those folks uh, is a challenge. But that's, like I said, there's tools like that out there that we're trying to use to do some of that filtering you're talking about or that you're asking about. And then beyond that, just as folks come into the program, after they get in, there's they go through the training. The training itself is designed to bring people up to speed, but then if somebody's not able to meet training requirements or progress in training, then um, we have to look for a way to off-ramp them and to uh, you know, find a different way for them to be able to serve. Talk to me a little about the piece where you're going to have contractors do some of the education, at least on the short-term basis, mm-hmm. until you can scale up full-scale training for Space Force. Sure. So for the most part in cyber, I mean, we've always partnered with industry, um, even in our longstanding schoolhouses. Um, we tend to incorporate existing commercial certifications into the curriculum. In general, the commercial certification is not the entirety of the curriculum, uh, but the commercial certification will cover portions of the curriculum requirements. And so what we'll do is we'll have commercial, uh, you know, we'll, we'll bring in a, a, a commercial vendor to do to do their piece of the training and send and have students go through that, the certification, uh, go through the certification tests, and they'll usually have, that's usually part of the course, right? Um, so that's, we've had those commercial certifications integrated into everything from our initial skills training that's been, that goes on at Keesler, um, all the way through our, our you know, weapon system training, our initial qualification training that we do at, uh, at the 39th, and, um, and even some of the more specialized training beyond that. So we, we tend to partner with industry as much as we can so that we're not having to reinvent curriculum, you know, hire new instructors, um, even in places where the industry partners can, uh, you know, they provide their own range space that we can utilize for the training as well. That that um, ends up saving us money in the long run. So any places that we can partner like that, we do. It helps to make sure that um, we focus our instruction on the things that are more military-specific 
uh, in terms of like employment of capability. And so one of the key tenants is do what only you can do, right? And so we try to make sure that we're focusing our you know, military instructors and training on those things that are more military specific and the ways that we can le- leverage commercial providers for things that are more generic to industry in general. Space Force Colonel Joe Wingo, Chief of Cyber and Spectrum Operations, speaking with Federal News Network's Alexandra Lohr. Check out Alex's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Still to come, DISA fields a classified version of a very widely used cloud platform. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Tammen here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Tammen here on Federal News Network. Since January, the Defense Information Systems Agency has been running a highly classified version of a very popular consumer platform. DISA completed functional testing of what it calls DOD 365-SEC, a secure version of Microsoft Office 365, which is a cloud-hosted suite of common products. With a progress report on user testing, we turn to DISA Program Manager, Carissa Landymore. Ms. Landymore, good to have you on. Good morning. Thank you for having me. And is this whole project kind of a development of the post-pandemic remote access platform that DISA has been working on? Originally, there was a version that was kind of set up as an emergency, and now you're transitioning to something more permanent. Is that a fair way to describe what's going on? Absolutely. With the pandemic, you know, we fast-tracked getting collaboration moving to the cloud on the unclassified side, which really, I think, set the precedence to move quick to establish these capabilities into the cybernet. All right. So now we have got this Microsoft Office 365 SEC, DOD 365 SEC. What exactly is it? How would you describe it? DISA has made tremendous progress in our efforts to provide enterprise-wide cloud-based collaboration uh, capabilities, enabling mission-critical tasks on multiple classification levels. And DOD 365SEC is really just another enterprise service that we're going to be adding into our portfolio. It's kind of a hyperscale cloud software as a service on a classified mission network. You know, we we met a few years ago with multiple mission partners to gather requirements, partner with industry, Microsoft, our integrator, GDIT, to make sure that we could take DOD 365SEC and evolve collaboration, enhance data sharing on the secure internet protocol router network or SIPR network, which has never been done before. Um, by, by doing this, we're providing warfighters with modern tools that allow them to operate ahead of the adversary and meet their mission anytime, anywhere. Now, are the products on DOD 365 secret the same ones you would get if you had a normal commercial version of Office 365? They will be. Um, it's a. It's going to be building blocks. So it's, you're going to see it continue to evolve. Uh, so with Microsoft, they are providing what's called Release One. They just uh, announced their general availability. Release One's going to provide you SharePoint, Exchange Online, which is your email, and OneDrive. Uh, so those are the initial capabilities you're going to get out of the box. Teams is really what what you'll hear a lot of the mission partners. They're after that collaboration capability. That's going to be a part of release too. So that's going to come second. It's important to get those fundamental 
blocks established, get that foundation laid down, and then Teams is going to come after, which right now Microsoft is on target to provide general availability of that the end of March. Now, is it simply the network by which people access it and the cloud facility in which it's hosted secret, or is something inherent in the products themselves that are different from the commercial versions? There's going to be a lot more security around this capability than what you have um, in the commercial world. So additional security, putting, if you think about, you know, more fence, more guardrails around this. But what we're doing by bringing this to the cloud is equipping the warfighter in the department with responsive, resilient, secure, and high-quality IT services. So the products do have some inherent security measures in them, as well as being on a network that is nobody else can access. You got it. Absolutely. And from a user standpoint, now you're in testing, do they have to do anything differently? You know, when you have a regular Office 365 account, you put in your password and most of us have two-factor authentication. Is one of the challenges making it easy for people to get on yet still be secure? Um, so we're going to have multi-factor authentication. A lot of the ways we we secure the, the environment on the low side using that authentication that you mentioned. We've been doing a lot of testing, but folks are going to really take a lot of what they did to prepare for their migration, looking at their existing networks, running through a list of, you know, questions, cleaning up your mailbox, all of those different things that we did to prepare for aisle five. We're going to implement, apply those lessons learned. And folks can start to do that today. So we've already started to work with the components, the mission partners around the department to give them that information, because that's going to take some time, right? They, they're they all on-prem. They're going to have to do some, some legwork there to get their network ready to make that transition into the cloud. We're speaking with Carissa Landymore. She's a program manager for the Defense Enterprise Office Solution at the Defense Information Systems Agency. And now you have deployed in a, would it be accurate to call it a beta level with certain users and what's the progress at this point and what kind of feedback are you getting? We are currently in our pre-production environment. Um, we started our testing, you know, and again, our partnership with Microsoft, they were able to get us into a pre-production environment beginning last April. And starting late August, after our initial integration and, and uh, testing, we were able to bring in what we call canary users or technical users to help us come in and test out the functionality of the products that Microsoft is going to be releasing as part of their initial release. So we had three phases of testing. Phase one is what I just mentioned, getting in there, doing a, a deep review of the of the initial capabilities, partnering with Microsoft to clean up any configurations, coding that may need to be tightened up there. But all in all, everything tested favorably. So due to the success of that, uh, we were able to wrap up our functionality testing sooner, which allowed us the ability to open it up a little bit and bring in anybody from the the department that wanted to come in and test it themselves, getting back to that network readiness, starting to look in there and think about, okay, what do we need to do as an organization to prepare our community for their transition into the environment? So that's kind of where we are now, and that's called the limited user assessment. So we're very excited about that because, again, that 
that allows us the ability to be transparent and begin that that uh, that work with our organizations across the department. And what have you heard so far? Have they called up and said, Carissa, I hate this or hey, this is pretty good. <laughs> no, it's definitely definitely all been been great news. And, you know, again, because of the, the partnership, you know, we're breaking down barriers, working with the DOD CIO's office, working with our integrator, Microsoft, making sure that we get the requirements from the components. Getting them in there sooner allows us to take that feedback and get it back to Microsoft so that they can take a look and say, okay, for future releases, here's where we need to be focused. Um, So we're really excited with the partnership and just the overall feedback from the department. Now, the purpose of cloud applications is so that you can access them from pretty much anywhere, that there is internet connectivity. So does this require government-issued equipment to be able to access it from wherever you are? But can you also use what sorts of Wi-Fi or wireless networks to access it and maintain the security? and have all the authorizations there. You will have to be on the SIPRNet, so you won't be able to access this from the public internet. You know, again, this is a classified environment, so it will be locked down tightly from a security perspective. We have to do that. So you can't do it from Starbucks, but what if someone is teleworking yeah. and they? what's the situation there? How do you get to SIPRNet if you're teleworking? We do have special devices for certain VIPs and individuals that they can use that we've been working with. So if you think of our DMCCS devices are the mobile devices that certain VIPs can use to access their mail from a mobile device, a secure mobile device. We have another, it's called a Windar, if you think about kind of like a laptop, if you will, that folks can use as well. So a lot of testing going there because again, Part of going to the cloud is getting to the collab, you know, focusing on that collaboration so that people can access their information anytime, anywhere. And that's exactly what we're doing here. And so far, that testing has been very successful as well. So that that testing will continue, but the the focus will be you'll be able to access it from your zipper client, uh, your thick client or your thin client, either your DMCCS device or your your Windar or think of that kind of like a a laptop, if you will. So warfighters could be able to use this somewhere with the proper devices and presumably they take with them wherever an action might be happening or an operation might be happening, there is a SIPRNet capability to that zone. Absolutely. Yeah. And the, and the goal is that they'll be able to use their DMCCS device today and continue the collaboration just like they're seeing on the on the unclassified side in with the Microsoft 365 products. All right. And what's the schedule from here on out? You're still in the limited user assessment. Do you have an endpoint for that? And when will that start to go beyond that? Absolutely. Things are really gaining speed here with, with all the, the excellent feedback we've gotten. So right now, beginning of our mid-May, excuse me, DISA. We like to have DISA come in, adopt the service first, making sure we, you know, get any, smooth out any processes that we have before we bring in our mission partners into the service. So mid-May, DISA will migrate Fully, we'll declare FOC and we'll, we'll transition DISA into the uh, offering. And then beginning June, we'll open up the doors and start to welcome in the other components across the defense agencies, combatant command services, etc. Carissa Landymore is program manager for the Defense Enterprise Office Solution at the Defense Information Systems Agency, DISA. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. Have a great day. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, rebuilding the Office of Personnel Management will take years longer. But first... 
a progress report on the joint warfighting cloud capability. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Tammen here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to the Federal Drive with Tom Tammen here on Federal News Network. The Defense Department's grand experiment, the Joint Warfighting Cloud Capability, known as JWCC, will be put to the test this summer after a prolonged protest-laden saga that began in 2017 under the moniker JEDI. The Defense Information Systems Agency will put the Open for Business sign out on its virtual JWCC storefront. Sharon Woods, the director of DISA's Hosting and Compute Center, tells executive editor Jason Miller about why DISA believes there is a lot of excitement around JWCC. We're building acquisition packages with customers right now. And, you know, we had developed a tool, it's almost like a wizard of, hey, you need a statement of work and you, you need to define your requirement and what are your evaluation criteria. So we wanted to get out of that manual process where you're emailing documents around and configuration control is just a nightmare. So we've created this almost like TurboTax experience just to put the package together, um, just to get the documents together. And so that's what we're doing right now. Folks are getting their funding documents cut. And so I think in the coming weeks, we will see the first awarded task orders, but there is a little bit of upfront work to get the acquisition package together and get through an evaluation process. So we're really close on those first task orders. It also took you know, about 30 days or so just to get the contractors up to speed, right? There's just things you have to do with contract kickoff, with looking at you know, sigils for folks that have to deal with those. Uh, where you, you just need to make sure that everything's squared away contractually. So we, we are in a position to offer secret. The provisional authorizations are already in place for some of the cloud vendors. And I think it's just doing that final legwork of connecting the ordering process for it. And then top secret, like I mentioned, we're looking at early to late summer to making that available and with JWCC, you know, especially because we're, you know, we're seeing the increased demand for Oconus Cloud, we're focused on Oconus Cloud. There's a lot of opportunity with JWCC to capitalize on the different edge capabilities, edge compute that the cloud vendors provide in order to fill those requirements for the department. What kind of demand are you starting to see for JWCC initially? Are you how many calls are you having? How much interest are you? Have you been doing a ton of educational sessions? Because I think one of the big concerns was because this took so long to get together, not just JWCC, but because of the predecessor's challenges, that a lot of folks have already moved out, right? You have Air Force Platform One, Cloud One, Army has ECMA. I'm, I'm sure that the Navy has Project Flank Speed and a bunch of other kind of very fun names like that. So they've all kind of already moved out into the cloud. How much education are you doing versus how much are people coming to you saying, we want to get it, we have a task order ready for JWCC? It's actually been a great challenge to have. We've had, uh, for instance, over a three-week period of time, I mean, dozens of interactions. And so we've had to surge in order to meet that demand of, hey, this is what JWCC has to offer. This is why it's a benefit to you. You know, while the military services, you know, have moved out in some different areas, uh, you know, the combatant commands uh, are still in great need. Some of the supporting components, right? You look at DFAS or DITRA or DLA, right? There's a whole list of acronyms of other DOD components where they're directly supporting the warfighter and they have great need. 
Uh, and so we're seeing great demand for JWCC. Uh, and it's it's been fantastic to see. And so we're excited. We're we're really excited about the demand that we're seeing. Is there any, in terms of JWC, you said the first task orders uh, hopefully be awarded soon. I'm not sure how much you can talk about it because I do understand there's some sensitivities there. But do you expect, generally speaking, all four of the awardees to bid on every task order? Or again, with anything else, who really mm-hmm. knows? Because it could be something that Microsoft and Oracle are really great at and AWS may not play in as much. How do you see it kind of working through in this just early part so far? Yeah, and I think you you just hit the nail on the head is that the four cloud vendors that we have on JWCC, they're not identical, right? They have different specialties and each offer different advantages over another. There's also different degrees of familiarity within the the department with the cloud vendors. And so part of what um, is actually provided under the contract is education, training. And so, you know, maybe a customer has less familiarity with one of the cloud vendors, but they're able to access training and advisory services to help fill that gap. And so the task orders are made available to all four vendors to compete that doesn't necessarily mean that all four can best meet that requirement. And we have different pathways to do those competitions. Uh, our, our benchmark is um, you know, 60 days or less, and some of the different ways you can compete are quicker than that, right? Really fall more on the under 30 day, uh, which when you look at competing task orders against a multiple award contract, more often than not, that takes over a year or at least a year for other contracts to do. And so we got as creative as possible with JWCC uh, so that we could meet the demand quickly. At one point, and, and it was probably a year ago, probably at the last DoD Cloud Exchange, maybe mm-hmm. even before that, one of the things that we know DoD talked about, and this is maybe something for DoD CIO's office versus your office, but I'll, I'll just throw it out there for you and see if you could maybe offer a little light on it. There was maybe not going to be necessarily specific competitions, but more of, hey, this need goes to this vendor. Hey, okay, that need goes to that vendor. Kind of more of the, you know, we're going to divvy it up based on the requirements. It seems the DoD uh, shifted to say, no, we're going to be more traditional in the task order. But it sounds like you're going to find some hybrid where we're going to be getting this out through uh, through task orders. You can do it much more quickly than just a typical like oh, I'm going to go to the GSA schedule, and that could be quick as a day, and it could be months and months. There are different use cases, and this is something that maybe we didn't necessarily appreciate when we put things in place, is that you know there are folks with a lot of existing task orders, I think, on other contracts, and I think we all knew that. What we didn't necessarily realize was the scale of that, right? I know a customer that has 100 different task orders under other contracts, and that's that's huge, but they wanna come to JWCC, and that is where I, it's exciting, because uh, they see JWCC as that centralized push button, premier enterprise contract, and so they are coming to us to say, hey, I have this other task order on another contract, but I wanna come to JWCC. And it isn't just always, hey, I have this vendor, and so I wanna keep this vendor, there are also additional demand for, I, I want to start looking at other vendors, right? I need to be multi-cloud. And so while I started with one particular vendor, 
I actually want to expand to other vendors, especially in specialty areas, particular tactical edge devices, particular kind of machine learning capabilities at the platform layer. Uh, so, so some of the demand signals, um, it isn't just people that have never done cloud before. We're seeing a mix. Is there any concern from your perspective at the hack that you could be overwhelmed by the excitement over JWCC? I mean, because the, one of the big concerns on any big contract is, okay, we only have four vendors. What if you get, and I'll make this up, right? A hundred task order by May 1st. Is that something that you all have taken? Obviously, I'm sure have thought about, but how have you guarded against it? Yeah, so it's definitely something we thought about and it's a challenge that I welcome. That is where I want to be on that side of the scale. But we do have a few benefits for us, right? That That is actually why one of the reasons why I stood up the hybrid cloud broker a few months ago was we needed an entry point or the program office would get overwhelmed by all the demand signal, right? Their focus has to be implementing the contracts and making sure performance uh, is occurring the way that is envisioned in the contract. That's different than and all that customer engagement and helping people understand what's on the contract and facilitating their onboarding and, and the task order process. So that is one of the reasons why we stood up the hybrid cloud broker. And it is something that is elastic, right? I can add folks into the hybrid cloud broker and surge them. And so that gives me some flexibility there. Sharon Wood is director of DISA's Hosting and Compute Center, speaking during Federal News Network's third annual DOD Cloud Exchange. You can hear all of the Cloud Exchange interviews at federalnewsnetwork.com. Still to come, rebuilding the Office of Personnel Management will take years longer. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. The Office of Personnel Management still has a lot of rebuilding to do. My next guest points out it went eight years without a confirmed director, and the Trump administration tried to roll its functions into the White House and to the GSA. Here to put some recent OPM testimony into context, American University professor Bob Tobias. And of course, you're a longtime observer of OPM, and you heard Karen Ahuja's testimony recently before not such a friendly committee in the House. It was not a friendly committee, but, you know, I think there was some silver lining in it, Tom. I think that it gave her an opportunity to engage Congress and the, the greater public, people who pay attention to OPM and its relationship with Congress, an opportunity to describe a new way forward for OPM in light of its recent instability and, of course, historical underfunding. I mean, I think one has to keep in mind that the prior president created four years of OPM instability and anxiety in seeking to eliminate OPM. You know, first he wanted to move the policymaking process, which really is the protector of merit principles, to OMB, which is traditionally a highly politicized agency. Second, he proposed to move the balance to GSA. And third, he put forward Schedule F, which if enacted, would have allowed several thousands of GS 15, 14, and 13 career federal employees to be made political appointees and then dismissed at will. So there was a lot going on over those four years. And it's important to point out that none of it happened. OPM wasn't disbanded, nor was Schedule F implemented. But what did happen was in a long, long period 
of uncertainty and paralyzing anxiety. Will I or won't I have a job? Will I or won't I be able to continue my life's work, preserving the merit principles? You know, career employees had to keep their head down and under the radar so they wouldn't be noticed and hoped OPM would not be disbanded. And it wasn't. All right. Now we're three years past all of that now into the Biden administration, which is a supporter of OPM. But it's also fair to say OPM had its own issues over the decades. They never really got their operational wing, which is to take care of the annuity figuring. That's still a long paperwork intensive kind of outdated process. They also had trouble getting rules implemented. It would take them, you know, like when phased retirement came in, it took them about two and a half years to initiate that rule. And the security clearance process came to them and got pulled back again to be more efficient. So they've got some internal work also, I think it's fair to say. Oh, yes, indeed. And the committee focused on that employee retirement processing issue. And Ahuja pointed out, and I think with some pride, that the processing period, while she's been a director of OPM, has decreased from 95 to 65 days, which is a significant drop. And that's without any additional new IT. The 2023 budget provides money and the 2024 budget hopefully will provide money. And it's important to keep in mind that when any agency is doing IT work, it takes them a year to write the kind of specifications that they need and another year to implement. So if Congress doesn't provide needed funding in the second year, all the first year money will be wasted. So I think she's on the right path. I think she made the right point, and hopefully Congress will hear. But the committee also correctly pointed out a billion dollars in FEHB money was distributed improperly. So there were a lot of kids in Fed families who (laughs) enrolled. They were the proper age, but then aged out of the program. I think it's 26 now and still continue to get benefits. We're speaking with Bob Tobias. He's a professor in the Key Executive Leadership Program at American University. Yeah, so there's issues you're pointing out. Basically, they have operational issues and also the issue of their own employees and the uncertainty that was brought about by that long period of instability. But then there's also OPM service to the greater federal employee community with respect to merit principles and some of these processing topics. Right. So, you know, I think OPM is certainly now on the path of protecting the merit principles. It's on the path of fixing the FEHB issue. And the committee also pointed out the need for hiring reform and more specifically hiring reform with respect to cybersecurity. And as she was getting started to explain what she was doing, the committee said, well, maybe if you weren't so focused on diversity, equity, and inclusion and accessibility, you'd be able to hire quicker and faster. And she quickly dismissed that account saying that the private sector is focusing on that. The federal government needs to be focusing on that. And when the federal government fully embraces these principles, you have better policy being made. And outside of the cybersecurity people and so on, in general hiring for federal agencies, which still takes a long time, I think OPM has tried to counsel agencies for a long time that there are more than 100 different hiring flexibilities that have been in place for a long time. And they're telling agencies often, 
use them and you can get people in quicker without going around merit systems and competition. That's correct, Tom. And they've focused on cybersecurity. And, you know, Congress gave OPM the authority to create new pay scales and hire faster. And I believe that they're ramping up to make that happen. So what's the prospect then? If you were the director of OPM now and you are seeing some money come in for IT and for some of these modernization initiatives that they need to do, let's presume maybe she's got a year left and, you know, four years on that job is, I think, as long as anybody's ever had under an administration, regardless of whether that administration continues. So what should she be doing now in the year, year and a half left? I think that she's got to fix the retirement problem. She's got to fix FEHB. Those are sort of the table stakes of credibility of a human resource operation. Can you get the appearance of the simple things solved so that you can get on to the difficult policy questions? Because, you know, a classification system that was created in 1949 that's totally outdated is a huge issue. Inability to attract Gen Z into the federal workplace is a huge issue. And the inability of those hired to keep them on the rolls is also a huge problem. So she doesn't lack new issues over the balance of her time in the job to fix really substantive issues that have been plaguing OPM in the federal workforce for years. Bob Tobias is a professor in the key executive leadership program at American University. As always, thanks so much. Thank you, Tom. And we'll post this interview along with a link to more information at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, EPA renews a 15-year-old program to save billions of gallons of water. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to the Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. At least one program of the EPA has had consistent support regardless of the administration or the makeup of Congress. It's called WaterSense, and it's aimed at plugging household leaks thought to result in billions and billions of wasted gallons. We get more now from WaterSense lead environmental specialist, Beth Livingston. Ms. Livingston, good to have you on. Thank you. Great to be here. And tell us more about WaterSense and the sense that EPA has of how much water that is intended to be used ends up leaking or somehow getting wasted every year. It's a lot, isn't it? It is a lot. So every year, common household leaks actually waste around one trillion gallons of water nationwide. A trillion? And a trillion. And that's equal to about annual household water use for nearly 11 million homes. So yes, it's a lot of water wasted over nationwide. And the average home wastes nearly 10,000 gallons of that water in leaks as well. Wow, that's enough to fill up all the swimming pools in Hollywood. <laughs> <laughs> and what uh, the Water Sense program then does what? How does it operate? So we are a partnership program, and we're sponsored by the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency. So we are both a label for water-efficient products and a resource for helping people save water. So we partner with plumbing and irrigation manufacturers, uh, retailers and distributors, home builders, local governments, and utilities. And is there some kind of a, I mean, we all know about the electricity labels that have been in the Energy Sense program for many years. So Water Sense then is the water equivalent of Energy Sense. 
Yeah, so exactly. So we are the sister program to Energy Star here at EPA. Energy Star, right. Mm-hmm. Got it. And, well, are there ratings on, like, do you, do you have a lab or do you have a way of testing water efficiency of, I guess, dishwashers and other appliance? What else uses water? Here? Yeah, so um, for WaterSense, we label mainly plumbing and outdoor irrigation products. So we've got toilets, we've got shower heads, and we've got bathroom sink faucets. And then outside, we've got irrigation um, systems and spray sprinkler bodies. So for us, we basically have a certification process in place. And the federal standard government, right, we have our federal standards, and we have them certify or the manufacturers make products that will use at least 20% less water than the current federal standard. So, for instance, for toilets, it's 1.28 versus 1.6. For uh, the faucet aerators and accessories, it's usually a 30% difference off the 2.2 standard flow. And for showers, they need to use less than, uh, no more than 2.0 gallons per minute. And is there a grant program connected with this? The only reason I ask is because about nine months ago, some people came to my house from, I don't know whether they were from the county or the state or the city, but they went through the house and put in new shower heads, which frankly t- took some getting used to because not as much water comes through, and did a few other things in the house. But it also involved light bulbs that they replaced. We got some free light bulbs and two free shower heads. That wouldn't have been because of, a, well, the shower heads would not have been through a water sense grant, would they? So it probably came through your utility or another partnership. So a lot of times that energy company, since you had light bulbs coming in, will also replace shower heads. Because guess what happens when you're in the shower? You don't shower with cold water, right? You shower with hot water. So that's where the energy part comes in for shower heads. So a lot of the energy companies will uh, replace the shower heads for that reason. So that was really an electricity gambit as much as a water gambit. Right. So it helps, uh, helps uh, you know, Americans save water because we know the water is all we've got, right? We can't make water. What we have is what we've got. So uh, it's good to save it. And in partnering with industry to try to encourage these more efficient standards for things like shower heads and toilets and so forth, there's also a, let's put it this way, a performance issue. Like if a shower head really feels feeble, people might be in there twice as long. And if a toilet doesn't quite do its job efficiently, you might use it twice or might flush it twice, this kind of thing. So how do you work with industry to balance performance such that people don't end up wasting more water because it's too weak the first time around? So that's the old stuff, right? So that's why we came, WaterSense came into being because we wanted to have products that save water and perform as well or better than standard models. So these manufacturers, you know them, you can walk into any Home Depot or Lowe's or any other supply store and see all the name brands. So they worked with WaterSense in the beginning to make sure that these standards, like I said, performs well and saves water. So the shower heads of old are not the same. They've got all kinds of different engineerings in place and different ways. They all have their different manufacturing capabilities and engineering capabilities that they've created to make sure that these things perform just as good, if not better, than standard models. We're speaking with Beth Livingston. She's lead environmental specialist for the WaterSense program at the EPA. And just tell us more about the leak prevention or the leak repair program that you run kind of a sensitivity week every year. And yep. how do you mm-hmm. get into, I mean, the leaks are behind the walls often, or, you know, I mean, that's a different issue than, than the performance of appliances. 
Right. So um, our leaks that we're talking about are common household leaks. So these are visible leaks. So these are ones that if you're looking in your bathroom, for instance, so that's the largest use of water in the home, which is more than 50%, 50% of your indoor water use. So we're talking about looking at the faucet, looking at the shower head, looking at tub spouts. Toilets are usually your biggest culprit, and you can look at pipes under the cabinets. So for instance, for toilets, we call them silent leaks or running toilets or AKA ghost flushes. Right, so you don't realize that your toilet is leaking. So here's an easy, easy test that we talk about during this week. So you take off the top of the tank, you put some food coloring in it, wait 10 minutes, and if water shows or coloring shows up in the bowl, then you know you have a silent leak and uh, you gotta flush that so it doesn't stain your bowl. But usually that just needs to be replaced for the flapper and it's a very simple rubber device that holds water in the tank releases water into the bowl when the toilet is flushed. And it's, easy, like I said, easily replaced. They should be replaced every five years anyway, but they don't cost much either. They're a couple bucks. Um, yeah, you can get a whole bag of flappers at Home Depot for like $10. And yeah, they're not go. expensive. I mean, I would suggest since there are a bunch of different flappers, either take your old flapper with you or take a picture of it so you make sure you get the right one for your toilet and you're not going back and forth to the store. <laughs> All right. And so then how do you measure like the results if a trillion gallons a year is estimated to be lost? What? How do you get people to do that through this WaterSense program? So we have partners throughout the country being our manufacturers as well as our utilities and they message to their partners and to their customers in the area a lot of them hold workshops they have races they do online workshops they do stuff at the local re retailers like the home depot and lowe's so that people learn how to fix leaks they also put stuff on social media we've got a lot of videos on our website as well which is a great campaign we've been doing it for 15 years beth livingston is lead environmental specialist for the water sense program at epa thanks so much all right. Thank you. I appreciate it, Tom. We'll post this interview along with a link to more information at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The Environmental Protection Agency is asking Congress for a big boost in funding next year. At more than $12 billion, it would be EPA's biggest budget ever. A Biden administration goal is to reverse a shrinking workforce to match the growing workload. Senate Republicans took issue with some of EPA's 2024 proposals. Federal News Network's Drew Friedman has the latest. Among efforts to tackle climate change, protect public health, and improve infrastructure, a top priority of the EPA budget request is rebuilding its workforce. Senator Tom Carper, the Environment and Public Works Committee chairman, says the increase is necessary after years of underfunding and understaffing. The budget proposal includes roughly 2,000 additional employees for EPA, which Carper says will be especially important for the agency. Here's Carper. It's no secret that EPA has not always received the resources, at least in the last decade or so, than the resources required to be successful. In recent years, flat budgets and staffing shortages have severely undermined the agency's ability to do its job in many respects. As EPA's responsibilities and workload continues to grow in the face of climate change and other human-caused environmental disasters, it should come as no surprise that the agency is overburdened. That's especially true when we look at the agency's workforce. EPA's current uh, number of staff, that's about 15,000 as well, below the range of 16 to 18,000 that the agency had from 1990 through 2012. For the years, we've asked the EPA to do uh, more with less, much less. 
But the budget request was met with skepticism from Republican members of the committee who questioned the proposed influx of funding. They say the boost is unnecessary as the agency has already received billions of dollars of additional investments through the Inflation Reduction Act and the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act. The committee's ranking member, Senator Shelley Moore Capito, explains. Well, I think one of the issues here is the enormity of the dollars. EPA received $41 billion, and yet the president wants another 19% increase, 2,000 more people, when with the $41 billion, you're allowed to hire people to move forward these programs. To me, it's just mind-boggling in this time of fiscal restraint or where people are really watching their dollars, this kind of overreach and overspending. I mean, it just seems so exorbitant to me. EPA Administrator Michael Regan, who testified before the committee, says the bills only apply for part of the agency's mission. He says the work for EPA is much broader than that. Here's Regan. Well, we're we're not solely a an energy agency. I mean, we focus on environmental protection. So IRA and Bill donor four dollars to very critical programs that oversee Tosca, pesticides, herbicides. I mean, we have a lot of programs that are in need of resources that don't fit neatly under the umbrella of IRA and Bill. You know, while the percentage seems high, the dollar amount that EPA is asking for uh, of an agency this side and the scope and the magnitude of our responsibility uh, is, is a catch-up game. We, we've been in decline for, for decades, not just one or two administrations, for decades. And so we're trying to develop a workforce that can keep pace with a very challenging and growing economy. With the additional work, EPA says it will need more employees to do the job. Unions who represent EPA employees and many EPA workers themselves have raised concerns about the staff being overworked. It's causing issues like low morale and burnout, just to name a few. The agency's staff has flatlined in recent years despite a now rapidly growing workload. But the Senate committee's ranking member Capito says she's looking for more details. She wants clear answers on EPA's return to office plans before she says she'd be on board with the additional funding. Here's Capito. Last year when you testified before the committee, we discussed EPA employees. When would they be back to work in person? And you said, quote, all employees are scheduled to be back by the last period in April 2022. This year's budget proposal suggests, however, that back in the office does not mean actually present in the office. We need to do this before we seriously consider any more administrative outlays, including the EPA's desire to hire approximately 2,000 additional FTEs. The need for so many additional workers is at best questionable given recent EPA announcements about how it's going to manage large buckets of money appropriated by the IRA. The EPA is sitting on more money than it's had in its history. EPA's budget request for fiscal 2024 says that hybrid work for the agency will only be increasing. It's become a concern for some members of Congress as well as D.C. officials. They say that federal agencies in general are not using their office space to its full potential. In the budget proposal, EPA says it would consider alternatives for office space. For example, the agency said it may be willing to share office spaces with other agencies or use hoteling, where EPA employees can share unassigned desks. Regan explained more. Most of our employees are working on a hybrid schedule, just like the rest of the federal government and corporate America. Uh, But, you know, I'd, I'd like to say that we are definitely meeting all of our performance targets. So, our staff is fully engaged. I think what we're trying to do is, is do what everyone else is doing, which is think about how do we have a responsible policy in place that leverages our workforce. Um, whether you're in corporate America, state government, or the federal government, uh, people have hybrid working conditions, and we're trying to be sure that we're accommodating that schedule while meeting our mission. In one example of a struggling component of EPA, 
Democrat Alex Padilla, a member on the Environment and Public Works Committee, pointed to challenges for the Office of Air and Radiation. But Padilla says it hasn't been easy amid years of low staff levels. Here's Padilla. We need to continue this collaboration. We need the EPA to expedite reductions in pollution from these mobile sources. I also want to recognize in all fairness to you that years of underfunding during the Trump administration has made it particularly challenging for EPA to fulfill its obligation to these disproportionately impacted communities. Now, EPA has a mission to also protect public health and advance environmental justice, but that work cannot be done without sufficient resources and staff. Despite a sizable budget for fiscal 2023, Regan says more resources are still needed. If you talk to my staff, they are very grateful for last year's uh, budget, but we are still in need of significant resources. There are some that might suggest that we can't absorb these increases. Uh, that's a hard message to give to people who are already worked, overworked and working six and seven days a week. So absolutely, when we look at the challenges facing our country, especially on the transportation side, uh, the amount of skills and resources uh, and bodies that we need to keep pace with a changing uh, economy and technologies, we absolutely need these bodies that we're requesting. And on top of simply hiring more staff, EPA says it plans to incorporate diversity, equity, inclusion, and accessibility, a top priority for the Biden administration, into its hiring practices. It's also planning to expand and start a paid internship program for the agency. The budget proposal would also staff up and add funding for the Human Resources Office. The enacted 2023 budget for EPA's HR office was about $58 million, and the agency is asking for nearly $80 million for 2024. Overall, Regan says the budget proposal is necessary to accomplish the goals for the agency. Here's Regan. It is definitely putting us on the trajectory to do that. The percentage increase that we received last year was the first step. This year, I know 19% sounds like a lot, but when you look at the dollar amount and the needs of the agency, it's not, but it is positioning the agency to help this country stay globally competitive and keep up with the 21st century. Drew Friedman, Federal News Network. Check out Drew's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Tammen. For the latest updates, stay with federalnewsnetwork.com or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. 